0: All right, so folks, we're in um, in Chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession this morning. Hey, come on in. They are in the very back right closet up high in a box. I know, doesn't make any sense to me either. Okay, so, all right, so we're looking at Chapter 8, which is on the mediator, Christ our mediator, right? And so, if you want to look at this, it's eight sections, and there's breakdown into three headings. I would call I, there's all, these aren't in the in the notes, so I'm going to give them to you now, and I'm going to pass out the handouts as well. <coughs> all right, so let's, uh, Justin, if you will distribute these to everybody who doesn't same have one. As last week, they're the same as last week. We're continuing, but to get into it, I want to I want to just get like give you guys a lay of the land, so you'll you'll be able to catch up uh, later, and also know where we're going ahead. Uh, We're probably going to take actually one more week on this one. So the question is, who is he, his person, uh, what did he do, and then how do we receive it or how is it applied? How do we get it? So who is the mediator? What did he do, and how do we receive it? So roughly 1 through 3, 4 through 5, and 6 through 8 of Chapter 8. All right? Does that give you guys a little table of contents, a little bit of insight into how we're going to break this thing up? And uh, so I recommend, if you want to look at a good commentary, a (coughs) newer one on the Westminster Confession of Faith, our doctrinal standards, uh, the Confessing of Faith by Chad Van Dixhorn is great some of you guys have. I'm not seeing anyone in here with it today, but G.I. Williamson is the classic, the standard. So all good. There's a lot of good ones. R.C. Sproul has one. There's a good, good number of them. So, But for, that, for all to say, confessing our faith is very important. We are a church that has a confession of faith, the written confession of faith, and we have clear statements on 33 chapters of what we believe and then the catechisms. Let me tell you, there's value in that. There's a lot of value in that. So I tell you what, you can go out and find uh, an old television set just laying around somewhere and it has almost very little value right but the newer ones uh, at the store They're very valuable, right because they're able to do what they're able to give you incredible clarity a great picture I always gets uh, a little sad when I pull up an old movie to stream it and it hasn't caught up with my capabilities and So it looks like you're watching through a, a glass darkly, you know There's a lot of there's a lot of fuzziness because it was filmed in the old way before we had all this HD technology, right? to make it clearer and crisper image, right? So there is a lot of value in the same way of knowing what we believe and having clarity and clear, concise, accurate statements about these things, especially chapter 8, because we're talking about who Christ is, what he did, and how we receive it. That's the center of our, of our Christian religion. So in the Westminster Confession, as it goes, if you want to think about the most important or urgent thing we have to know is chapter 1. How do we receive truth at all? What's the authority out there? It's the scripture. And then what's, what's the scriptures teach? Then we get into this chapter 2. Who is God? That's the first thing we got to look at. Who is God? Uh, Calvin says in the beginning of the uh, Institutes of Christian Religion, uh, all knowledge begins with knowledge of God, knowledge of self, and it's hard to know where those those things end and begin because they're so intertwined. Who we are is wrapped up in who God is, and who God is is wrapped up in knowing ourselves because we're in his image. There's a lot of interplay in having to know rightly about ourselves and know who God is. So that's the, that's the second ca- category is God. Who is God? That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, God has an eternal plan. He's eternal, and therefore He's always had a plan to enact in time, space, and history for His glory and for the salvation of His people. That's what chapter 3 is about. Chapter 4, we begin the outwork of that plan, which is going to be creation. God begins history with speaking it into existence. God said, and there it was. He speaks, and all things move. He creates all things that are nothing by the word of His power in space of six days. Then we see... Well, he didn't just create and leave. He is providentially upholding and sustaining all things by the word of his power. in his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's providence. That's chapter 5. Chapter 6. A special uh, bit of providence we have to examine is the fall, sin, and judgment. That's part of God's providence. That's not some renegade thing that another deity or Satan brought into the thing. This works for God's glory also in his mysterious providence. Seventh. How is he going to bring about his plan of salvation? It's through the means of covenant. The covenant first of works with Adam, which is a failure, and the covenant of grace through the second Adam, Christ, the mediator. That brings us to the mediator, chapter 8. We looked at last week who this mediator is, that he's one person, two natures, not 50 50, not HAVZI, human divine, uh, not appearing to be human, but really divine. Not originally human, but being adopted into being divine. He is the eternal Son of God, who in time, as it says in Philippians 2, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he laid down his equality with God and took on humanity. So he didn't lose his godhood. He added humanity in order to be the mediator, right? And therein lies his humiliation as our our mediator. Welcome. So as we look at how that works out, for our redemption, we're going to look at section 4 and section 5 this morning. So section 4 and section 5, we've already talked through 1 through 3. Now we're going to look at 4 and 5, and then we'll, we'll look at maybe if we get to at 6, and probably 7 and 8 next week. Okay, so 4 and 5. It says, and let's pray before we start. That's a long introduction, but we're going to pray before we begin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you're good to us, that we know this truth and that we confess it is to our advantage, our great advantage, and it is given as a gift by you. And we ask now that you would bring further gifts to us in bringing clarity uh, and thoughtfulness and conciseness to our mind where we can articulate these truths for the nourishment and encouragement of our own souls, but the blessing and encouragement of our brothers and sisters and neighbors. As we look at the uh, countless college students who are beginning to matriculate back here to Norman, uh, they need our clarity. They need our precision. They need high definition doctrine of Christ the mediator, or they will be uh, without hope. And so we pray that you would uh, instill in us this confession in our hearts, that we might know the Bible better, that we might know your word better and know your revelation so we can use it effectively for the encouragement of our souls and nourishment and the encouragement of one another. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's get to it. I, I love this section. So as we're looking at four, it says this, this office, and when he says the office, he's talking about the mediator or surety. If you look back up to section three on page one here, it says in the fourth line, it says he's been furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety. And then it's footnoted there. Uh, with the T's there, as that's where we, we see the footnotes there in the Scriptures to testify to that. So he's, he's taking on this office. So it says in 4, "...this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he may discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments, torments immediately in his soul, and most painful sufferings in his body." Was crucified, was died, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he rose again from the dead, with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven. And there he sitteth at the right hand of the Father, his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end. Of the world. With that said, let's unpack this briefly. You might recognize a lot of that language from another source. Where would this be? A, what would be a parallel confession that we've heard these things stated before. The Apostles' Creed. Yes, uh, we often will say it at our church. Uh, we have didn't say it last week. We're not saying it this week because we're we're going to spend a great amount of time saying out loud the Heidelberg Catechism questions one and two so that we can get that flow of grace memorized into us. And so we're going to pause the Apostles' Creed, which we use this every week, and, and say that. Another good summary. But as we look at it, it says here, He did both willing willing undertake which He may discharge. He was made under the law. So, he, so it says Jesus was made under the law. And where do we find that? Well, the principal place I like to think of that is Galatians 4.4, 4, if you want to look that up. It's in there, Galatians 4.4. 4. He's made under the law, so Christ... Who is the giver of the law becomes a keeper of the law. He's made uh, obligated to the law. Who else is obligated to the law? Well, Adam was obligated to the law. Adam was made under the law. He was was given the direct command in the garden to to do all the things that would glorify God, but he gave him a provisionary, uh, like a uh, probationary clause. Hey, you can eat of everything in this garden, but that one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely die which uh, is representative of his full obedience to the law. And so he, Adam, disobeyed God, and for our sakes, we became sinners in him. In Adam, we all became sinners. We all died in Adam. Uh, and then it says Romans five twelve says, we died in Adam, but many came to life in Christ. Through faith in Christ, the second Adam, we came to life in righteousness. So as you think about that, It would be necessary for us to be truly, justly reconciled to God for another to come after Adam, as in Christ, uh, to be under the law. How are we going to get saved? But well, the the law is the thing that's broken, so someone has to keep the law for God to be just in justifying us. That's what Romans 3.26 says. So he's got to have a righteous substitute. If you're me and I'm you and all of us here, we have to have a righteous substitute so Christ, as the mediator, willingly undertakes that he may discharge, charge, being made under the law, and perfectly fulfilled it. Okay, now this brings me to the question. So he perfectly fulfilled it. Now, why in heavens did Jesus die on a cross then? If he perfectly fulfilled the law, why does he die on a cross? There's no reason for this. He never broke the law. Why does he die on the cross? And he tells us, it's not because, it's not, the wrong answer is because he was just, Badly treated and, and out of his, his own of his power, and he was a victim here. He was never a victim. He says to his disciples, "No one takes my life; I lay it down freely of my own accord." He is going to die for sins he didn't do. He kept the law perfectly. Why is he doing that? Yes. Not made it wrong, but he took our punishment. Yes. So he, if he's being made under the law, he's kept it. But so, so, so he did not have any of his own sin. So that means he must have someone sin on him. Like, he must be taking someone's sin on him. So when it says that when we believe God, and Abraham believes God, it's counted him as righteousness, right? That's Christ's righteousness. But when Christ died on the cross, he had to, for that to be just, he had to truly be counted as sinner. Like, he had to be truly counted as the sinner of the world. And he was. That's why it makes sense. That's why it actually... Uh, is just. That Jesus died. That's the most righteous thing at that point. It's not a tragedy. It's the most righteous thing. Jesus really became our sin on the cross. It was truly accounted to Him. Everything you and I thought about, did, said, ever will, think about, say, do, lie, cheat, steal, uh, lust, anything that we have had against God, idolatry, it's all on Jesus. And everything we ever will have on him. the elect sins were placed on Jesus and that's why he truly died and he not only physically died he spiritually was tormented under the weight of hell and misery upon the cross right what are some of the words that we remember him saying on the cross right what do y'all know anything that he said from the cross It's very important words right some of the things why have you yeah, yeah my god my god why have you forsaken me that is the depths of the mission right there he's gone to the very depths his soul is crushed under the weight of our sin he has endured hell okay he didn't need to physically go to hell to endure hell right because hell wasn't operational yet <laughs> it wasn't since what that is it will be if you look at what romans we not want romans revelation 20 and the last verse of the chapter say it speaks of this lake of fire and the destruction of death and and, and satan he goes because, Look. God doesn't dwell in time and space. He doesn't dwell in the same space as we do. So he is able to take on the eternal, infinite wrath, the hell that we deserved, on his body on the cross, dying physically and spiritually in that regard. That's for our sins. So he dies for the sake of our sins. They're not his sins, but our sins. So therefore, he is our mediator and our surety Because God's just, he's not going to give us double jeopardy. If those are truly our sins, they're truly atoned for, right? They can't be judged again. They've already been judged, not just partly judged, but all the way judged, okay? So if you're going to go to hell, uh, what's going to be there for you? If you you and I take a field trip to hell, uh, what are we going to find? We're going to find God. God will be there without a mediator though right there's no mediation between his wrath and those who receive that wrath except those who are in christ we go under the blood and righteousness of the mediator so there's nothing in hell for us because it already paid it was paid on jesus that's the that's the good news right so as you think about that he takes on this office willingly that he might discharge it be made under the law perfectly fulfilled it and endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul that's that spiritual death the soul the grief of the soul right that's what that means and most painful sufferings in his body was crucified and died and it says that he was buried remained under the power of death yet saw no corruption on the third day because you know he's paid the penalty he's been just he's been justified the the lord has has uh, received his sacrifice as the Righteous priest, unlike all the previous priests before, he has once for all made an offering of atonement and sat down. and He and he he lays down his life, and then he it says uh, with the same body which he suffered arose from the dead. The same body, very much crucial, because his body is the forerunner and the first fruits for our bodies. And so it says that he ascended into heaven, and he sits there at the right hand of the Father. It doesn't say that he uh, rose from the dead took off his body and entered the spiritual world. He now lives bodily in a place. He has a zip code. He has physicality. He has materiality because he has the same body that the disciples touched, that that Thomas touched, that, that ate fish and cooked fish and fished with the disciples. The same one that said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, wait in Jerusalem, and you'll be a witness to the end of the earth. The same mouth, the same lips, the same tongue, the same breath and lungs that push those words out still exist. They're still there because that's our salvation. You know, he is the mediator. He still carries us with him. It says in Ephesians 2.6, we are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. Okay, so I've, 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 this is the worst Sunday school of all time. Uh, I've preached for you know, for a long time. Okay, we're going to just kind of just slow it down here. All right. So uh, this is like the. This is not. A, this is not. A, it's not a small group. Of houses, it's not a Sunday school. It's become a large group or a preaching moment, and it's not. That's not what I want for this. But let's let's talk about this. What is Jesus doing right now for you? This is a key thing. You've got to be clear about this. What's He doing right now? He's, he's inter. He's making intercession. He's not done. He still remains as your priest. That is crucial for you day to day. That you have a priest who died and lived for you. And now he works for you still. He is still your, he's still bringing you into the presence of God. You're truly acceptable in the presence of God. And so you have to forget the spiritual amnesia that you feel every morning when you wake up and be reminded and receive the revelation from God that the mediator dwells in the heavenly places and has you there with him. Because by his word, he's interceding for you. And presenting you before the throne of the universe, and he is governing all things, not only for his glory, but for your good. Like, that's huge. For your good. Like, His your good is his interest. So I looked at all these, these college students this week, uh, who, we had 45 college students come to this pre-pre uh, preschool, uh, preschool, not preschool, but preschool year, uh, you know, retreat for Christian kids, and they got to meet... Some Christian ministry people and some church groups. And so, uh, Dr. Baisal, Ryan, and I were invited to go and set up a table for Trinity. And so we did. And I looked at them and I was like, you know, meeting and greeting. And I've done a million of these things. I used to be a college campus minister. Uh, and so at this point, I'm so old, so much older though. You know, I'm like, I'm looking at these kids and they're like, they're like 18 and I'm 43 and I feel like they're dad. And I'm like, so <laughs> rather than just presenting all the virtues of the ministry or the church here, I'm like, what are you guys uh, nervous about? <laughs> what, what, what are you? What's what do you, what's what's the thing you're most concerned about? And I was like, just listening to him talk, and i will be like, you know, well, you're at a greater position than anybody else coming in here because you're in Christ. Because you know the Lord is interceding for you. You know you can pray to Him. You're in a, a much better place than anybody else that doesn't have Christ. And you know that you have this. So so I, so I'm saying you take that to the Lord, and He will bless you. That's just one. Like that's that's just a. Uh, a a huge difference that we shouldn't take for granted that a college student has. And you also know that there are gonna be difficult things. There are gonna be really hard things that you might be called to do in college. And and you know that those things are not random. They're not arbitrary. There's gonna be horrible things that'll happen to you. You might fail, you might get uh, hurt. You know, there's a lot of things that can happen. But the thing is, is that God works those things for His glory and for your good, right? For those whom He loves and love Him. Okay, that's huge, Kobe. Yeah, Co- not Kobe, not Kobe Bryant. Cody, <laughs> what did you have to say? Please have um, Would you say uh, that Christ interceding for us wavers or alters at any time in our lives based on our disobedience or obedience? I think it's finished. I mean, I think it's absolutely finished. I, it, it couldn't be any less. You know, don't wouldn't you agree? I mean, because it's like if, if his if his body. Has has been my salvation, you know, and it's not me. If my if my works don't account for it, but what he's done, then his role as intercessor never diminishes. In fact, we're in a better position because when I sin, uh, I'm his, and he uh, confesses my sin for me. he 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 brings my his blood over my sin, you know, or his blood for my sin. So there's a I'm in a better position uh, for eternity because of what he did two thousand years ago and I've received because of the work of the Spirit because he made me new and I, I believe now. Yeah, so so even though see, see my faith may vacillate, it may go high, it may go low, it may go strong. We I'm gonna have faith that's gonna be a mixed bag through my whole days. Yeah. And I'm gonna express my faith in a mix of good works, some better works, some worse works, and just, you know, all days are gonna be an up and down struggle for me every day to mortify the flesh and live to righteousness. So but the, the thing is, my, my situation is not going to determine his mediation for me. Yes? Discuss in regard to that uh-huh. the difference between and the, our relationship with testing and temptation and sanctification. Yes. So I, I like to think about testing uh, and temptation as something that is, uh, well, uh, we're going to experience uh, the consequences of our sin now. Okay, if you if you uh, if I if I commit a sin, I'm going to co- uh, experience consequences for that. Now, uh, I'm going to experience uh, God's fatherly displeasure. That He is going to discipline me into Christ's image. Now, and that's that's part of His sovereign purpose for me. He He has a plan, a program for me. And when I take someone with me to the gym, I have a plan for him and, and for her. And I want to. I want I I, I a goal I want them to get to. And God's goal for you is Christ-likeness. He wants you to be formed in the image of Christ. Not a fool. Not, not the image of the world, but the image of Christ. And so he is going to, by his providence, sovereignly use and ordain even the sin. Even the sin. Though he's not responsible for it, as we learned in the, the third section of the confession, third chapter. As part of it. Does that make sense? Is that kind of a, cl- a clarifying situation? You're no, gonna, yeah. What, what I think we need to remember is that no temptation ever comes from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but He does test us. Yeah. Testing does come, and that is part of our, of His process, as you just called it, planning. Right. But we call it, we typically call it sanctification. hmm conforming you into the image of God and the image of Christ, sanctifying you definitively at the moment you believe, right? You're holy now. You're set apart. But you're going to be further conformed, renewed every day, which is what the sermon's about today, renewed to holy calling every single day because uh, God's always at work in you, working for his glory, for your good. And your good is ultimately holiness, okay? He wants holiness for you. So I think like when we're talking about this, like the church is really always kind of like struggling on this point because there's like, so if I tell them this, that it's gospel, 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 believe, 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 and you don't have to do anything, the tendency is going to be like, well, is that really going to work? Because you don't have to tell, like if you tell somebody, you know, they don't have to do anything to save themselves and they can just go ahead and sin to their their content. You know, just go out and sin. But the problem with that is like, like, That's not a, like, telling somebody, here's what you need to do, and that's going to change you, uh, is not the way it works. The law doesn't change us. The law is a, uh, as far as using the law for sanctification, the law doesn't work for sanctification because it doesn't have the power to change you. It has the power to be a mirror, to show you who you are, uh, what you're doing. Uh, It has a, uh, it's a, it's a window into who God is, uh, you know, a picture of who he is. It's like an X-ray; it tells you, you have a problem, you know, but it doesn't fix it. You know, it's like you go and get X-rays; and the X-ray doesn't heal you. Uh, it must be healing, right? So it has it has its uses, extremely, its extraordinary and helpful uses. But uh, the law is there's no problem with the law. The law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, as as Paul says in Romans seven, sold is a slave in our sins. So I have to go to Christ and confess my sins and tell Him uh, I'm endeavoring to new obedience. Create me a clean heart, wash me, renew me. All these things, because that's who I am. I'm not the sinner. I, that's not who. So, so if I don't, I don't, I don't have to tell people that God's gonna reject them and, and, and you know be extremely disappointed with you if you do these things, because you know what? We already know that. We, we that's not who we are. We are in Christ. So that's the situation. I believe we, we we rest is we have this sort of like kind of uncertain. We're kind of like stepping out on a on a trapeze. And we're like, okay, is this really going to hold me or not? Am I really going to be able to do this for the first time? Am I really going to step up there and rest on God's grace in Christ? Or is it going to be, do I need to really do something? To, do I need some helps to keep me up there? No, really, God's going to keep you up there because the Son accomplished it. And the Spirit is applying it. You're going to be, and it says, God will sanctify you. Okay, this is the situation. So, okay, so is that is that helpful, everyone? I mean, is that, I'm, I'm kind of... I'm, I'm kind of thinking I'm, talking, I'm thinking through the potential directions we can go with this. But as, we're sit, as, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, the intercession will never diminish. And yet we also have the calling to work out our salvation with fear and trembling each and every day. Uh, but the thing is, as we said earlier, God does not occupy the same space as us. We occupy space. We're not competing for our sanctification. God is sanctifying us, yet we're working all the time at it. It's the thing so we have this uh when you're talking about justification it's, it's sort of easy to understand because god it's an act of god's uh grace but sanctification is a work of his grace and he as on all things like uses prayers you know to accomplish his purposes he uses those as ordinary means to accomplish His purposes so he's going to use our works as he does it okay So let's go to the fifth point here. uh, We we actually have some uh, discussion questions, but we're not going to get to all of them. Uh, Fifth point, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience, and sacrifice himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only a a reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given him. Okay, let's go to, to Hebrews 9. 12 real fast and read a bit of the good news about this as our mediator it's referenced so many times throughout this uh, confession i preached on um, reformation sunday the 500 year anniversary of the reformation i think i used this passage as the one uh it's so central to the work of christ so looking at it uh Hebrews 9, let's start in 11. It says, When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation. So, so he's talking about the greater things that come, a greater tent. So where do we see a tent in the Scripture? Tabernacle, right? Tabern- like the Old Testament. Okay, they had this uh, visual symbol of God's transcendence. You cannot enter this. A priest has to go and he has to be purified and he has to wash and he has to wear special garments that are holy. And even then he has to confess his sin to be worthy to do it. He's not worthy. So, so Jesus is going to enter into this greater, more perfect tent. Okay, it's to come. And he says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, his, of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. So he's both the priest and the blood offering, as we mentioned last time thus securing an eternal redemption. So it says their eternal redemption is secured through the work of the one man. We're not in that text at all. It's all Christ as the priest, as the mediator. It says for verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls, the things that we can slay and produce, uh, the sprinkling of a defiled person with ashes of heifer, if that can sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself that blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So because of those those transgressions, both Adam's and ours, we are under uh, wrath and judgment and a death. But what we have received through the work of a mediator is an eternal inheritance. Receive all the riches through grace, through faith in Christ. So that is the scheme. Does that make sense, everybody? All right. Question as we wrap it up here uh, How might recognizing that Christ is our mediator um, encourage the repentance of our sins? For our sins, how might that work? <coughs> you, okay. Do you mean like knowing he's our mediator? why would we repent more or want to do that more well um i hate to say say this but for me just knowing that there's a person that loves you enough to actually die for you Uh uh-huh and also the fact that you know he